Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Do you know the right questions you should be asking colleges about how they will be teaching your kids to learn at their institutions? Or how the skills they may learn how they translate into the working world. Today, as part of our second part of our college planning process, we're going to focus on finding the best fit for your kids. This is going to build off of part one, where we talked about the cruel optimism of the college planning process, how parents feel about making this financial huge financial sacrifice in most cases and financial contributions, and if it's the right decision. But today we want to figure out how we can go about finding that best school for your kids. And obviously every child's going to be different, but what I want to prepare parents for is the right questions to ask, uh, the right people to talk to. So research does suggest that what you get out of college is what you put into it, learning-wise. So when it comes to the skills that are required to thrive and survive in today's workplace and pivot when necessary, thinking, processing, and communicating, these are the skills that employers are looking for. And there seems to be no guarantee that the college experience will be able to deliver. David Coleman, who runs the College Board, which is the organization that administers the SAT, wrote in The Atlantic, Finding great teachers and insisting on learning from them is a form of resistance. You must push the rules and the system. One of the most misleading things we say in education is that a good school will give you an excellent education. A great education is never given. It is taken. This actually highlights um, the need for finding a mentor early on in your college experiences, which is one of the Uh, discussion points that we talked about in part one. And just to recap that, a mentor doesn't necessarily have to be a professor. It could be a coach. It could be an administrator. It could be somebody that um, you work with in an internship or just work period. Uh, A mentor can be um, come in all shapes and sizes, if you will. But that, that is really key, as we talked about in part one, to having a great college experience. So when it comes to asking schools questions about learning development, um, how do we go about determining what questions to ask and even how learning actually happens at the schools that you're looking for? So here are a few related questions that you should be asking when you're meeting with schools. Can you describe how the college or universities institutional research office or individual academic departments measure progress in learning? Do they attempt to measure how much time students are studying outside the classroom 
or inside the classroom? If not, why? Can they quantify the average number of pages or words professors assigned to them to read and write compared with other schools that you're looking at? Or are they trying to measure the quantity or can they measure the quantity and quality of the feedback that they receive from teachers? I know from my academic years, you know, at the end of each semester, um, you were required to fill out a teacher form, uh, evaluation form. So th- that, that type of information, how do they go about quantifying that? Another question to ask, if they don't think that these measures are useful that we just laid out, what measures do the schools use? What will your professors do here to make my child's life harder? Now, that may seem strange, but... Obviously, we know from research, again, that by typically pushing kids, they're going to learn. I know that in my brief year of, of teaching economics um, at the college level, I didn't have a attendance policy. And it was very frustrating when kids wouldn't show up for school or for my class. And I was talking to a, a tenure professor, one that I actually uh, had in class at this institution, and he, he said to me in a funny way, Paul, now you know why we had attendance policies. It was a way to force you kids to come to class. But I'm like, professor, I, I didn't, I was coming to class because I was footing the bill myself. I was paying for it. So I wanted to, to get out what I put into it. And he said, well, most kids don't operate that way. So it was, it was very interesting a very interesting conversation of how professors work, how colleges work. And obviously, it's very different at big schools versus small schools, and we'll get into that here in a second. So in doing some research on this topic, um, I highlighted in part one as well, Ron Lieber's great book, The Price You Pay for College. And I'm using a lot of things I've learned in that book um, as part of this three-part series on college planning and how I work with families at TAMA when it comes to college planning. But there are a few blunt questions that you should be asking your kids. And you should ask them these repeatedly leading up to college. And they are, one, are they more likely to skip a class if they're just another face in the crowd? So that kind of goes back to my example of the attendance policy. But I went to a small school. So if you weren't there, and if you were weren't there, you were one of a class of 15 or 20, you're going to get, you're going to notice. But if you're at a larger state, you know, institution, uh, state school, and there's a couple hundred kids, you're not going to be missed. So how does your kid react, adapt in that kind of situation? What makes them feel most comfortable? Another question, similar in nature, but when they're entering a dining hall, do you want everybody to know, to know your name, like cheers? some people to know who you are, or no one to know you at all. So depending on how your how your kids react to that question, these these two in conjunction should be helping to lead you to big school, small school. And that's such an important fit. I know growing up I went to a public high school and I graduated with 28 kids. And so I knew off the bat that I didn't think I was going to fit well or survive in a big state school like 
Michigan State or Western Michigan or, you know, one of those big, big schools. So these two questions cut to the heart of that social anxiety, which is a natural part of any transition, especially a life transition like going to college. So it may become overwhelming if your school doesn't match the answers your kids are giving to you with these questions. So the next topic I want to talk about is, does a school align with the job market? Now, schools don't get to decide, don't get to decide what the hot jobs are when your kids are going to school. And those could even change. I mean, you go in as a freshman and accounting could be the, the hot job that you know a lot of employers are, are searching for. Three years from then, four years from then, it could be computer science. So we're working within a system where a lot of professors, what they're teaching doesn't match up neatly or obviously with what employers need. So going back to how I let off this conversation is this is why it's important for young people to develop their thinking, processing, and communication skills because those are the skills that that are going to translate into any field or career. Um, It's potentially not so much about what you know but how you go about figuring things out. A former teacher and now consultant, Sandy Hottie, who was on the podcast um, back in the fall, she teaches kids about the critical school skills that they're missing in, in, in high school. And I'll link to that, that episode. It's a, it's a great um, introduction to this skills gap between what kids are learning or not learning in, co- in, in high school and how they translate to college. So you're going to need to size up this potential at the colleges you're visiting and determine you know, this critical part of spending a whole lot of money for an undergrad degree and not necessarily getting the not only life skills, but you know, career skills that your, stu- that your kids are going to need for when they walk out of that institution. One thing that that's important if your if your child already has a pe- passion for a particular topic, you know they may be ahead of the game. And if they are in that kind, of, if, if they are in that position, then they should really search out faculty at a specific college or university. Um, email them, set up a meeting, give them a phone call, so they can meet one on one. Get get a better sense of what that major is like maybe what kind of career options there are. You're going you're gonna to get a really good indication of that school and that potential professor and how that they respond. So if they're not very responsive, well, obviously that could be a red flag. But it's also helpful to determine um, where these majors applied to for graduate schools whether they got in, whether that they got eject, rejected, you know, what, where did they land as far as a career goes? So trying to align your child's interest and potential career um, is another very critical step in this college planning process. Again, as I emphasize in part one, most people, when they think college planning, they think dollars and cents. And we're going to cover that in part three, And we're going to try to take that financial guesswork out. But in these first two parts, we want to focus on your kids, their demeanor, the social aspects, and really, 
you know, what are you looking for from a college? Like we talked about in, cal- in, in part one. Is it social? Is it academic? Is it career? So one of the questions I often get when people are trying to save money is to go the community college route and then transfer. So I want to talk in detail a little bit about the transfer process. Students must stay on top of every possible transfer permutation, if you will, although there are many community college advisors that are there to help. But this means you need to be a matchmaker between the community college you're going to and the potential transfer school you're going to and your potential majors. So you need to keep a short list and be able to match up which which colleges work with which and do they support your major. So in the beginning, you want to develop and maintain relationships uh, with three key people, an advisor at the community college that you choose, a transfer admissions representative, representative at the intended four-year college you want to go to, and third, a faculty member in that major at that university or college as well. These three people make sure or can help you make sure that all the community college courses that you've taken will qualify for that major. So every semester, it's essential that you check in with them before registering for the upcoming period to make sure nothing's changed. I had Noelle Essig, who's a college and career administrator um, in the Detroit um, in Metro Detroit public school systems, where we discussed the pros and cons of students starting at, at college. And I'll link to this in the show notes as well. Um, although students and families can save literally thousands of dollars going the transfer or community college route, I'm not saying it's for everybody. Everybody's situation's different. But I will say that COVID has opened a lot of people's eyes to this as an option, given how so many schools struggled with remote learning. If you're taking a Zoom class and paying $400 a credit hour at a state school, is that all that different than paying $125 at a community college? Probably not. Another hot topic when it comes to trying to find fit are athletics. According to the 20 according to 2019 NCAA data, nearly 8 million high school students play sports. Only 480,000 play in college. And of those 480,000, a little over 180,000 of those athletes get scholarships. And most don't get a full ride. So that means 2.25% of high school athletes get any discount based on their athletic skills. And schools don't necessarily guarantee that that scholarship will last an entire four years. So I see this a lot. I feel this pressure. I'm sure you parents listening to this feel this pressure as well of putting your kids in all of these various sports and they get expensive, whether it's travel hockey, travel baseball, um, camps for volleyball, camps for dance, you name it. I mean, the, 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 the athletic industry for, uh, Kids, you know, whether it's grade or grades or ages five to 18 
is a booming industry. And I noticed that during COVID, most of those um, organizations, those businesses kept their doors open. Somehow, some way, they found a way. It's no surprise because it's very expensive. So when it comes to Division I schools, which is the most competitive uh, group of when it comes to athletics, they have the most money to offer. But <clears throat> what you want to be careful of is if you're going to an out-of-state school, you're probably still going to have to pay out-of-state price. So that scholarship that you may be getting for, for athletics may be only offsetting the higher price of out-of-state tuition. So that's one thing to be aware of. But on the bright side, I went to a, I finished undergrad at Adrian College, which is a Division three school. And their basis that they've focused on over the last several years has been athletics. And they've got a, they got a formula. They figure out if I bring in bass fishing or bowling, it's going to attract X amount of students. And so a lot of these smaller schools, Division three. NCAA Division three schools, they are not allowed to give scholarships, but a lot of them can find money in their financial aid budgets, whether it's you know merit aid for potential student athletes that they highly covet. And if you can combine having a athletic skill with a strong academic skill at a Division three level, that can make your child that much more um, in demand because all these schools want to boost their numbers. So that's a bit about athletic scholarships. So you go to visit a school and you're taking the tour and the, you're, you're towards the end of the tour. And I really love these three questions that, that Ron Lieber put in his book, um, the price you pay for college. And the three questions are to ask your tour guide, this. Who are your closest three friends here? How did you find them and was it easy? And how different are they from your high school friends? What you want to do is you want to pay attention to that student, that tour guide's responses, their body language. Do they light up immediately? Do they struggle to find an answer? That is very telling. Again, we're focused on trying to find the best fit for your for your kids. What school fits them best? What fits their personality? And that's not to say that we don't grow and develop through college because obviously we do. It's you know one of the our biggest growth spurts um, emotionally, sometimes physically, um, that that we have. But I think it's really important before we you know are about ready to write massive checks for a four year degree that this is a place that really fits with our kids. You know, going back to that question about how would they react in the lunchroom? Do they want to be at Cheers where everybody knows their name? Or do they just want to blend in with the crowd? You know, these are the conversations that you can have with your kids throughout high school. It doesn't, you don't have to wait until they're obviously junior, senior year. By that point, it's, it's probably too late. You want to develop and talk to as many schools as you can, but then 
start to narrow that to a really short list and really hone in on these questions. Again, to kind of recap, what's their process for learning? You know, can you get a sense? Are they focused on the real tangible skills that are going to help your kids thrive and survive um, in their careers? Communication, thinking, you know, being able to pivot. Um, it's not just about, you know, the calc class or the organic chem. You know, those, those, how those courses have, are taught haven't changed much over decades. So again, if you're looking for um, an institution, college that is going to cater to your, your kids' needs, these are the types of things that you should be asking about. So that's a wrap on the on part two of our college planning process. Next episode, we will focus on the financial side, which a lot of people have been asking about. And we, I am, I'm, I'm titling that taking the financial guesswork. So we're going to talk about savings, loans, how to negotiate financial aid, you know, and we're going to, I'm going to try to bust up a lot of, um, bad stereotypes, questions I get all the time about, well, if I save, isn't that going to hurt my financial aid? And so we're going we're gonna to dive deep into, into those types of topics. Um, you can find a lot more on the college financial, college planning process on our website, uh, tamacapital.com. And we will look forward to speaking with you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.